we start the show with breaking news. Adam Schefter is reporting that Eric Decker will be cut or traded by the end of the week. Told you so! We loved Quincy Anunua before this news. We love him even more now. We liked Robbie Anderson before this news. We like him even more now. Give me all the Quincy Anunua. And I absolutely plan to take flyers on Robbie Anderson. Does this change my mind about Ardarius Stewart or Chad Hansen? No. And we'll talk to R.C. Fisher from Fantasy Football Metrics about Eric Decker and Jeremy Macklin's release in a few minutes. But we have a buzzard message. Buzzard writes in. Oh, no. Have Ryan Pace and Mike Clay ever been seen in the same room? Why are you doing this, man? Why are you doing this to Mike Clay? Comparing him to the guy that gave Mike Glennon $20 million and traded up for Mitchell Trubisky for no reason. I like Mitchell Trubisky. We'll ask R.C. Fisher what he thinks of Mitchell Trubisky. And I think the Chicago Bears are going to exceed expectations this year, but that has nothing to do with Ryan Pace. Ryan Pace is a below-replacement NFL general manager, and I don't know why you all continue to provoke me with Mike Clay jokes and Mike Clay tweets. I know why you do it. Because Mike Clay and I beefing is great radio. And I am at the mercy of the minions and the buzzards. Specifically those that contribute show ideas on Patreon. You need to go to patreon.com and become a show producer. Once you're on Patreon, search Podfather and join the listener community at either the $6 level, which is a t-shirt level, or the $8 level, which is the hoodie level. You get either a t-shirt or a hoodie and an extra show every week, the backstage pass, and you get to ask me team-specific questions so I can help your fantasy team. And even beyond that, the most important aspect of official buzzardry or official minionhood is that you get to produce the show. These are the buzzard messages I read. Have Ryan Pace and Mike Clay ever been in the same room? That's funny. Thank you, patrons, for helping to produce the show. We no longer read buzzard messages from non-patrons, and I am relying on the patron community to produce the show more and more and more and more, and they are doing a great job. Two or three of today's questions that I have for R.C. Fisher are from the patron community. So please go to patreon.com, search Podfather, join us, and help to produce the show. If you like the show, you should support the show, and you get all this bonus material in the transaction. It's a no-brainer. But I'm looking at three tweets that Mike Clay fired off that members of this community wanted to make sure that I saw. The first one reads, traded a 2018 first and third for Tyreek Hill in a 2018 second. Now, I'm far from a Hill apologist, but he's worth that price. Okay, Mike, so you're saying that Tyreek Hill is worth a first-round pick. Okay, better hope it's not an early first-rounder. If you traded Tyreek Hill for what will be Nick Chubb or Saquon Barkley or the running back from LSU that I won't attempt to pronounce, Juice or Grease, can't ever figure out how to pronounce that name. There, I, I just tried, and I failed. You better hope next year is not a strong draft class, but it's shaping up to be a very strong running back class, and you have wide receivers like Cortland Sutherland that will be in this class. Uh-oh. 
I would not be trading Tyreek Hill for the equivalent of a 2018 first round pick. But it's okay though. Mike Clay wouldn't either because he's far from a Hill apologist. <laughs> Wait, are you a Hill apologist or not? If you're trading a first round pick to acquire Tyreek Hill, that means you're a Tyreek Hill apologist. That's what that means. So this tweet was the amazing combination of having no conviction and being wrong. Wow. It's hard to be this bad at Twitter. But Mike Clay's going to try. Here he goes again on Kristen Michael. Oh, man, I mean, he's better than Robert Turbin and probably better than Marlon Mack. And Gore didn't run too well last year. Kristen Michael is a name to monitor. <laughs> still, still, still. Still, Kristen Michael just hangs around. He just hangs around football Twitter, waiting for someone to come out with the scorching hot take that he is a name to monitor. Because at this point, calling the incompetent Kristen Michael a name to monitor is absolutely a hot take. It is the most contrarian position out there. Because if you waste one instant of your life, a moment, monitoring Kristen Michael from this second forward, it's a waste of whatever energy you expelled. Those are moments of your life you will never have back, thanks to ESPN's Mike Clay. But thanks to the buzzards, that's not all. There's more. The buzzards really want me to know what Mike Clay is tweeting. I'm not sure why, but they're making sure to drop these tweets on my doorstep in hopes that I read them on the show. And because I do this show for the patrons... I care only for those that have shown support for the show on Patreon. The show is for them. And if they want me to talk about Mike Clay tweets, I'm talking about Mike Clay tweets. They are the true customers of Roto Underworld Radio, and the customer is always right. On to the next tweet. Mike Clay on Tyrell Williams. A Chargers coach expressed some concerns about his game to me at the NFL scouting combine, and those concerns were further confirmed when the Chargers spent a first-round pick on Mike Williams. Okay, so this is why Mike Clay believes Tyrell Williams is overrated and why Mike Williams will significantly outproduce Tyrell Williams because a coach said something to him at the combine. That's it. That's the data-driven analysis. The coach expressed concerns to me, so I've essentially dismissed him from my projection system. That's all it takes to get marginalized from Mike Clay's forecasting. A coach said a thing that wasn't positive. <laughs> That's the threshold. But what about Tyreek Hill? Well, odds are Mike Clay didn't talk to any Chiefs coaches about Tyreek Hill. So there must not be any concerns, right? Right? If you are going to diminish a player's projection, if you are going to allow anecdotal information to negatively impact your perception of a player, then you must do it consistently. The only way that that analysis is not null and void is if you've collected all of the concerns expressed by all of the coaches about all of the wide receivers. Otherwise, you're cherry-picking the one player you have additional information about while enjoying blissful ignorance about all of the other players. That's not fair to the player, and it skews your analysis. We've talked about the sources of confirmation bias on this show. Well, that's one of the roots. You hear a thing through the grapevine or in person, and then you go out seeking information to confirm rather than letting the data speak to you from an unbiased perspective. So I disagree with Mike Clay on Kristen Michael. I disagree with Mike Clay on Tyrell Williams. I disagree with Mike Clay on Tyreek Hill. Woof! 
We disagree a lot. And that's okay. Mike Clay is putting himself out there with these way too early projections so that people will talk about them. I know that. He knows that. This is a symbiotic relationship. He needs people like me talking about him. I need people like him putting out way too early content to criticize. He's getting exposure. I'm getting content for my show. This is very much an Emeril Anthony Bourdain relationship. Anthony Bourdain was famously critical of Emeril, the world famous chef, Emeril Lagazzi, for years. And when you ask Anthony Bourdain, who one of the most important people in his life was, he would say Emeril Lagazzi because he wouldn't have had show content without Emeril Lagazzi. Emeril Lagazzi was a fountain of content for him, a source of inspiration for his show. So without Emeril, we wouldn't have Anthony Bourdain. And Anthony Bourdain is self-aware enough to recognize this and show Emeril Lagazzi great respect and deference and gratitude. As I have always done with Mike Clay, showing him great respect and gratitude and deference whenever I'm in his presence or whenever we talk about him on the show, I make sure to remind the audience that even though you have a lot of fun provoking me into Mike Clay critic mode, that I remind you all that he is one of the best fantasy analysts in the industry. He is the original fantasy pro. He took the task of ranking players and turned it into an art form. He essentially mastered the art of creating seasonal projection models. Those are shoulders that the rest of us stand on and build on. And we take those models and we create fantasy teams on Reality Sports Online. We use those models to decide which players we're going to cut, which players we're going to keep, which players we're going to renew. The thing I love about Reality Sports Online is you have to make these decisions in the offseason. A player's contract is expiring. Do you cut him or do you resign him or do you franchise him? So it's that extra layer of sophistication that separates Reality Sports Online from many of the other fantasy draft platforms and makes it much closer to a true NFL GM experience. It's just fun. The user experience is easy. The setup for commissioners is straightforward. And the advanced features of the league give it a richness that you just don't feel when you participate in other leagues. So go to Reality Sports Online now, sign up for an existing league, or create a new league and use the promo code UNDERWORLD. Fantasy just got real at Reality Sports Online. Now let's go talk to R.C. Fisher from Fantasy Football Metrics and College Football Metrics. Follow him at FF Metrics on Twitter. Welcome to the Roto Underworld Radio program. R.C. Fisher. R.C. Fisher is the founder of Fantasy Football Metrics and CollegeFootballMetrics.com. This guy is here by popular demand. I have not had a fantasy writer that received more requests from the audience to come on the show. The people want to hear from R.C. Fisher. So, R.C. Fisher, talk to me. Wow, thank you for having me on the show. Thank you for that intro. It's an honor to be on. I'm not sure I can top that, so thank you. We can just end it now. <laughs> end the show. Okay, bye. We'll see you later. It was great talking to you, R.C. Fisher. R.C. Fisher, everybody, go follow him. No. The intro was the peak. Whatever he just said, believe it. Yes, yes. So you started an advanced metrics website. I wouldn't know anything about that. 
<laughs> so you and I are contemporaries in this way, and whenever I have a contemporary on the show, I want to pause before we talk about fantasy football and the latest news. Macklin, oh, he's been released. Oh, Eric Decker's gone. Oh, what's going to happen? Ah, where are they going to go? Ah, who's next on the totem pole? But I want to zoom out for a second and discuss advanced metrics in general and their use in football specifically because I've noticed football is lagging behind the other sports in the use and the ubiquity of advanced stats and metrics in sports analysis. We're talking about all platforms, mainstream media, Twitter, everywhere people are talking about football, they're not using advanced stats and metrics nearly as frequently as they do when discussing basketball and baseball and other sports. And that to me is interesting because I think that when you and I launched our sites, we assumed that the ubiquity of advanced baseball metrics from OPS to war, the ubiquity of basketball metrics from true shooting percentage to per, that that movement was sure to consume football in a matter of years. And here we are a couple of years later, and we have not been consumed by it. Football fans are still interested in a player's yards and touchdowns. Why is that? It's strange because I think fans are, I, I, I'm overwhelmed in how I started the business, um, was an interest in numbers and an interest in, you know, a lot of people go back to Moneyball, and I was a baseball guy. And I thought, you know, why don't they do this in the NFL? Why isn't there more, especially player analysis metrics, your Bill James for baseball? Yeah, you see little tastes of it, but I I didn't see anything I could sink my teeth into. And I thought for sure somebody smarter than me would come up with it. And at some point I thought, I'll just tinker with it and see what happens. From the time that I started um, tinkering and messing around with it and talking to some people about what I was doing, there was an incredible interest from people, I mean, fantasy was already popular, but it was really getting ready to emerge. It's just getting ready to pop uh, to a whole new level. DFS was coming. The DFS movement changed the world. The interest level that people had was was off the charts. Um, for guys especially, I, I, I worked a corporate finance job, and I would talk to people about different metrics within our business, and they'd be half asleep. I would start to talk. I applied a lot of that same logic to football players i had everybody's guys stopped in their tracks and wanted to talk about the latest thing that i might have uncovered so i've been amazed at the uh, at the the fan uh interest and outreach in it so i thought man there's a business here and and when i do it the nfl is going to come run it i'm going to build it in the cornfield in iowa and they're going to the jerry jones is going to show up on my doorstep with a blank check and so i kind of walked i started with fantasy because there'd be in the NFL, because I knew there was a business component to it, but I quickly split off into doing more analysis for the NFL draft. And that's when I started to get more attention and got attention from NFL teams. Personnel departments started to subscribe and contact me. The crazy thing is, as I put this information out, and it's shown to have some level of success, I would say better than what the NFL teams are doing, um, pointing out players, the more I would point things out to them, and then they would become true um, – you know, a year two later, I would then bring up the new crop of players. They there was almost a a disbelief with every success when I talked to somebody in the NFL. There was almost that ah well they they would dismiss ah well no you can't really you can't do this with numbers. So here we are this far down the road, and I think that the NFL 
I don't know, incestuous from old school football coaches handing the torch down to the new guys that are coming and doing the same thing. They do not want this. They do not want this analytics movement to take foothold. They're curious in it. But if it, I think if it like with the Cleveland Browns, if the Cleveland Browns get anywhere near the fountain of youth, they are going to take they're going to do everything they can to wipe them out to make sure it's not a success or not perceived to be a success. I don't think you wanted to say incestuous there. <laughs> <laughs> There is some cronyism for sure in the NFL, rife with cronyism, absolutely. And you came from corporate finance, and there is a problem that we have right now in advanced fantasy football analysis that there's just too many financial terms that don't make sense. Do you refer to players as shares? No. There it is. He comes from a corporate finance background, and even he does not refer to players as fucking shares. Enough with the shares. <laughs> when you're talking about target share or production share, do you add the superfluous market in the middle for no reason? I do not. <laughs> there it is. Again, R.C. Fisher, corporate finance background, does not refer to target share as target market share. The only time I would talk stock market, the only time I would in, in, introduce that into it, uh, because it's not the markets are, are not the same, they don't trade the same, um, is some of the psychology of buying I, i've been in this, the stock market side some of the psychology of selling a winner and selling a loser i think that translates over a little bit into the trading of football players i'm interested in the psychology of it but as far as a functional market it's not it's not a it's not a one-to-one functional stock market to trade market in fantasy thank you thank you players are assets they are and draft picks are capital it is those terms make sense in the context of fantasy football, but these other terms we talked about do not make sense. Now, why is the NFL so anachronistic? Why do no NFL teams other than the Cleveland Browns seem to appreciate advanced stats and metrics and analytics? Because they don't have to, RC. That's the reason. They are by far and away the number one sport in America. And the second sport, basketball, is in a competitive crisis at the moment. Hand-wringing across the league, what are we going to do about the Golden State Warriors having an unfair competitive advantage, particularly if Kevin Durant re-signs at a discount? What is the NBA going to do? So the NBA is in crisis. Major League Baseball is losing viewers and fans at a rapid rate, particularly in those younger demographics. So Major League Baseball has a youth fan crisis. Football is still by far and away the most popular and healthy sport. So there's no impetus to change. Look at the celebration rules. They are allowing snow angels. That was the big change. That was the big change. <laughs> this The sweeping broad changes that the NFL is making. We are completely reinventing ourselves at the National Football League. That's right. That's right. Changing sensibilities across all 32 teams. How do you know it? We're allowing snow angels. That's right. Revolutionary change in the rule book. Snow angels. That's it. Yes. <laughs> the fact that that was celebrated as this monumental shift in culture was laugh out loud funny. You have a communistic business in a sense you're locked into these 32 teams that are strangely being critiqued by 
you know, the NFL Network, they they basically bought and paid for their own critique, and they can flex their muscle on ESPN um, because ESPN's starting to swirl down the drain. So there, no one can critique them. They paid for their own good critique, so they slapped themselves on the back with how. And you can't tell them that they're wrong when the ratings are what they are and the money is what it is. But and and you and I could, uh, unlike the real business world. You and I could partner together in other business forms and and say, okay, well, we're going to open up a 33rd NFL team in, you know, pick your city, um, and we're going to show them um, how it's done. You can't. You've got these these 32 teams hammer locked with the same generational owners handing it to their relatives, uh, coaches that are from the the system, the the same schools, the same tree, quote unquote. It's cronyism, not incest. It's Walmart looking at Amazon seven years ago and go, look at these guys not making any money. This you, you can't buy things on. They can't make a business of this. And then all of a sudden they wake up one day and it's over. The NFL is going to have a hard time having that version because we can't start an Amazon from the outside and just rock the whole thing upside down. The closest we're going to get is the Cleveland Brown. I mean, it for us uh, in the analytics community, if whatever that even means, just you and I, pretty much. Whatever happens with this Cleveland Browns um, changeover system is either going to push the movement into the new era like the Oakland A's did, um, or it's going to set it back for another five that may be terminal uh, to some degree. You look, I mean, they're obviously from the front office, they bring in outsiders that have a proven system formula from another business, which I think is the smart thing to do. And then they put into place, in my book, they put into place the quintessential system coke guy that is already in the system. I, I don't know why they didn't hire a radical coach. I didn't. I, I don't know why they didn't take it one step further with who they put in in as the head coach. When the Browns hired Hugh Jackson. Yes. When you accumulate all this talent, I think one of the great flaws of the NFL uh, is there are some teams that have some talent. And then they they draft them, they acquire them, they they give them over to the head coach who totally butchers the entire thing because he likes he likes big running, he likes physical football, he loves the run game, he loves the whatever. So here are all these amazing weapons, and they won't be used because this guy's got his playbook like from um, you know that Adam Sandler, the Water Boy. They are carrying their playbook that they did when they were 22 years old, and they're not changing it because it got them this far. So there's so many advances that could be made. Cleveland could give all this talent, and they are to Hugh Jackson. I'm I'm concerned. I'm watching it with interest. Is Hugh Jackson going to get radical with this radical talent, or is he going to somewhat sabotage? He could he could sabotage this in a sense. I think he's setting up. If they fail, Hugh Jackson's going to come out and go. See, I told you, Moneyball didn't. I could have succeeded here if it wasn't for these Moneyball guys. If Cleveland do, isn't a success, they, I, and, and they try to fire Hugh Jackson, or they do fire Hugh Jackson, he's going to turn on the system, and I'm I, I'm guessing the media is going to follow along, and and they're going to want to kill the new thing. They want it. They I think they want Moneyball to fail as well because it just disrupts the system. So what? What side of the tug of war wins out in Cleveland? And Hugh Jackson may be the linchpin it all hangs on, which scares the hell out of me. But I, I'm so interested in where this is going with Cleveland. The NFL Network is a Soviet broadcast company. <laughs> I love thinking of the NFL Network as a Soviet broadcast company. 
And on the NFL Network, I recall the criticism of Bill Belichick 10 years ago. In his own territory, fourth and two against the Colts, Bill Belichick knew that even if he punted, Peyton Manning was going to drive down the field and win the game. His only choice was to go for it on fourth and two in his own territory. They called a swing pass to Kevin Falk. He got one yard. They didn't convert. The Colts took over the ball and scored, and the Soviet broadcast company known as the NFL Network eviscerated the great Bill Belichick, mocked him for making what they called an egregious blunder, a catastrophic strategic error by Bill Belichick, even though those of us that understand probability theory know that Bill Belichick made the right call there. That play represented a seminal moment in the history of the NFL and the analytics movement in the NFL. And all analytics are, are probabilities defining possibilities. The idea that you will use probabilities as a driver of decision-making, that went away when Kevin Falk failed to convert that first down. If Kevin Falk converts that first down, we're living in a new era. We're living in a different age of play calling. I believe if Kevin Falk had converted that first down, no team would ever think about punting beyond their own 40-yard line. So there would be a 60-yard swath where teams would simply refuse to punt. They would always go for it, almost without question. And I believe we would also be in a place where all teams would go for the touchdown inside the five, and very few teams would kick field goals on fourth and five and fewer. Here's how crazy this risk-averse attitude has taken the NFL. Imagine you're the coach of, uh, let's let's say Cleveland last year. I mean, you're losing every game. You're, you know, at a certain point, you're out of the playoff race statistically. So the season's over. Why in the world? And I think this may be the next. The, the, one of the turning points of people getting a little radical in the NFL is just sitting there. Yeah, it's not radical. Let's be. That's not the right word choice. This is not radical. One of the turning points in a yeah modest shift in philosophy. The fact that we're at a place where a modest shift in philosophy is characterized as radical, that's where we are right now. That's just the reality of where we are. It's that bad. Radical in terms of for the NFL folks. Relatively radical. Relatively radical, yes. Yeah, relatively radical. Why wouldn't the Cleveland Browns, in a lost season with with young players, go for two on the rare event that they did score touchdowns? Why wouldn't they just go for two, just have a game where they're like, you know, what the hell? Let's just go for two whether we get the lead. whether Let's just see what happens when we start going for two every play. Teams get conf- The Steelers started dancing with it a little bit, and teams got confused, and it changes the score. It, it, it puts the other team on the defensive, and you would think more teams would just go, let's just try that. I mean, our season's lost. We, we don't need this kicker to practice any more extra points. Look at the Super Bowl. The Patriots won the Super Bowl by converting consecutive two-point conversions. Now, I hope there will be a day coming up that it will be an an offense instead of a defensive move. Instead of hey, this is and the the Patriots one. It was you know debatable how how to get the math towards the end with the amount of time remaining, um, but brilliant nonetheless. But I'm waiting. I, I want to just see teams actually come out, score that first drive touchdown, and then instantly go for two and completely put the other team on their heels, even if they don't get it. But there's such a a fear of failure. A risk of it's just safer to take the extra point, especially, and they're missing them now. So it's not like the gimme that it used to be. I, I'd 
I don't know why even lost teams, you know, if, if nobody wanted to be the first to step out and do it, it's one thing. But if your season's toast and you got a bunch of young players, why not just see what happens just for fan interest, just to be crazy? Nope, they're just going to line up for extra points all throughout the season in a 4-12 and year. I mean, they, even when there's no risk, they're risk-averse. It is a constant consternation that I feel watching NFL head coaches reject probability theory on fourth down. I mean, we had an opportunity 10 years ago to implement probability theory on fourth downs. It would have taken a long time. It would have taken years, but I think that it would have started, it would have sparked a movement. And looking back, that particular play, Kevin Falk stuffed on fourth down, was one of the most important plays in the history of the NFL as it relates to how the game is played, how the game is coached, how the game is called. There needs to be a 30 for 30 on ESPN on that play call. They could devote an hour of programming just to talking about the butterfly effect ramifications from that failed fourth down conversion. Here's why you're so right on that that particular play. If that if all of the things that you're talking about had happened in a non nationally or non important game involving Cleveland and Cincinnati. No one cares. No one cares. But the fact that it was the Patriots and everybody will follow the yes. Patriots. Yes. It was, a, it was the seminal moment yes. that if the Patriots had done it, that would have lit the fire. It was Brady against Manning, and probability theory was enacted correctly in a way that it had never been enacted before to win a game. And Based on probabilities, it should have helped them win the game. It's just that sometimes you're on the wrong side of a probability, and that's what happened. Oh, well. But that's not the coverage after the fact. It's not praising Bill Belichick for understanding math. It's denigrating Bill Belichick, of all coaches, calling him a fool because he understands probability theory, and the jocks at the Soviet NFL network don't know what the fuck they're talking about. Now, you talked earlier about your process over the years evaluating players and how NFL front offices have started to listen to you. And that's exciting. But as you've been evaluating players and you've monitored the outcomes of your process, is there a player that you hated two years ago that you would appreciate differently now? player that comes to mind when you say that, for me, embodies uh, an analytics movement that constantly needs to be reevaluating and, and shifting as the NFL shifts. The guy for me that I didn't get when he first hit the NFL, didn't understand how he he would end up becoming as good as and as critical as he was, was Jordan Reed with Washington. I built a system, you know, looking, you know, similar um, to the things that you're looking at. I'm looking at performance. I'm looking at in college. Um, I'm looking at the met the physical measurements. I'm comparing. I'm back testing it compared to guys that had made it prior. Um, you know. Jordan Reed did not fit. I, I, I'm I'm running around looking for the next Antonio Gates, and then here comes this six-two guy that's athletic, and I'm going, well, how? I don't know how they're going to use him, and I don't know if anybody would have the balls to use him, but I, I just didn't see it. When Jordan Reed became Jordan Reed, it made me stop and spend an entire period of time, a summer, re-looking at. Okay, I might have a um, nice hit rate at finding the Gronkowskis and Grams and. Uh, whoever else you want to put on that list, but uh, I'd miss Jordan Reed. How do I find? I have to change, you know, I have to change my mathematics to find Jordan Reed. So I, almost every year, it seems like there's another 
shift like that that I have to put in a new wrinkle to allow for a new style of player, which makes it fun. But to answer to your question, it's the Jordan Reed. But there's a lot of teams, you know, 32 teams. There might be four out there that are looking for, hey, we want our Jordan Reed. There's 28 that go. The tight end is a blocking tight. We need blocking, and and if they can catch two passes, that's cool. But I, I'm, I look at the tight end as a weapon, what Washington's done with Jordan Reed, and gone, man, there's something there. But a lot of NFL teams aren't aren't going, aren't going, following that yet. They'll talk about it, but they're not going there in mass. That Jordan Reed is an outlier, so you don't want to reverse engineer your models to account for an outlier because then you'll be wrong about the next 10 6 235 tight ends. However, Jordan Reed was exceptional in two areas. 26.2% dominator rating, 80th percentile, and an 11-11 agility score, 93rd percentile. So we love tight ends with great size-adjusted agility and great college production. So he was a dominant college producer at a Power 5 conference school in the SEC with incredible lateral quickness. Those two things together are very rare among NFL tight ends, whether it's a move tight end or an inline tight end. Those are rare attributes on a tight end's prospect profile. So when we see that guy come along, we will appreciate him. But the problem comes up when you start to force the Jordan Reed comp on the next 235-pound player like Evan Ingram. Evan Ingram was not as dominant as Jordan Reed. And Evan Ingram is on a team that already has three quality wide receivers. Jordan Reed landed on a team in Washington with Deshaun Jackson, Pierre Garçon, and that was about it. They didn't have a third receiver until Jamison Crowder came along, and Deshaun Jackson was hurt for half the games. So you need to look at the player's profile and situation if you want to make an exception on an outlier. Well, let me backpedal on a guy in that similar vein that had been just spinning his wheels in anonymity uh, under that same guise as Jordan Reed. I really was intrigued by Delaney Walker when I scouted him, and I, I looked at some of his numbers and thought, this this is somebody that doesn't fit the normal NFL box. What are they going to do with him? He goes into San Francisco, and they, they he's returning kicks to start. He's a tight end that's returning kicks is how athletic he was coming out of college. But they never got him involved in the offense. Now, granted, Vernon Reed, uh, Vernon Davis was there, um, but there were moments Delaney Walker was showing this amazing different difference-making tight end speed ability, and he could block. And then he he came up on his free agent time, and he ended up just re-signing back with San Francisco and sitting back behind and waiting his turn till he finally got loosed in Tennessee. I I I'd, I could see Jordan Reed had a talent. Part of looking ahead to the NFL uh, from a fantasy perspective is, is the NFL going to use this talent? Can Are they going to see the possibilities here? So I kind of, with Jordan Reed, I didn't want to overlook those guys anymore. So I, I, I don't lump all tight ends into one category. I built you know a kind of a second model for, hey, this guy has some Jordan Reed characteristics. So before you just kind of lump them among all tight ends, let's, let's at least acknowledge there's there's a Jordan Reed aspect here. I at least wanted to statistically identify him to be able to study him and not just go 6'2", 235. Come on. Yeah, good agility, but come on. Right. Well, Delani Walker also incredibly dominant, 30% dominator rating at a small school, Central Missouri. But the requirement here is that these guys are great football players. And as Delani Walker was a late-round pick, 
He wasn't going to get opportunity like Evan Ingram will early in his career. It was going to take time, inevitably, for a sixth-round pick from Central Missouri to be given a starting job in the NFL. That's years away for a guy like Delaney Walker. That's why it's going to take time for someone like Jonu Smith, for example. You need to be patient with Jonu Smith, the guy who's now backing up. Delaney Walker. And the reason you're patient with John U. Smith is because he was incredibly dominant at Florida International, just like Delaney Walker was dominant at Central Missouri. The college dominator rating reveals who's really good at running routes, converting passes in contested situations, all those things that help keep a player on the field and allow him to be productive game in, game out, season in, season out. Those are things that Delaney Walker showed in college. Those are things that Jordan Reed showed in college. And those are things that Jonu Smith showed in college. So you just need to be confident that even if Jonu Smith doesn't get an opportunity to be a major contributor in the first two years, just continue to stash him on the taxi squad because eventually he will get his opportunity and eventually he will start to produce. Delaney Walker was in his late 20s when he finally was given an opportunity to capture a reasonable target share in an offense. So it just takes time with tight ends. The later they're drafted, the longer it takes. Now, I talked earlier about a couple transactions that have come across the newswire here. Really not a big deal at all. Just Jeremy Macklin and Eric Decker getting released. I mean, <laughs> not anything really to talk about, but I know we're we're desperate for news. So Jeremy Macklin and Eric Decker getting released will just have to do, right? <laughs> so what do you believe are the ideal landing spots now for Jeremy Macklin and Eric Decker now that they are out there in the world? What's the landing spot that maximizes both Macklin and Decker's fantasy output, respectively, while also minimizing the negative impact on potential breakout players on the roster where they land? I don't know if you can have both sides of that because those guys are so good. They're, somebody's going to somebody's going to have to take a back seat wherever the team is. They show up most likely, and I'm assuming those guys are going to head to more contenders uh, more than you know bottom feed and try to get a big contract. My my team that I looked at and I was thinking if I'm Jerry May Macklin, uh, where would I want to go where I could pop right in? I don't necessarily have to be the number one but I can be a 1A or 1B, and that would be going to the Dallas Cowboys, popping Terrence Williams off the map once and for all, teaming up with Des Bryant, and then running Cole Beasley as their Julian Edelman, their you know whatever label you want to put on him. Jeremy Macklin with Des Bryant, maybe uh, my, my thought on Des Bryant watching him in the past year, he that's not the Des Bryant of old, and I don't mean that from an age or a slowing down standpoint. I, I don't know what's going on with Des Bryant, but he doesn't seem to be quite the full receiver that he was before. Not the, prof- the professional receiver and Des Bryant probably don't get mentioned in the same sentence, but he's such a dominating force. I can solve this for you. It's very straightforward. Tony Romo was one of the best outside throwers in the history of the NFL. Getting the ball outside and deep to allow his receivers to ring up first downs and score touchdowns. Very few quarterbacks in the history of the NFL have ever been as efficient throwing downfield and throwing to the outside as Tony Romo. Dak Prescott was a rookie quarterback last year. The year before that, 
Des Bryant was battling a severe foot injury. Right. So he was hurt one year, and he was developing rapport with a rookie quarterback the following year. That's why Des Bryant was not as efficient in 2016 as he was, say, in 2013 and 2014. But that doesn't mean that as he builds rapport with Dak Prescott, he's going to become a WR1 in fantasy again. He's not, because the volume isn't there. That's a run-first team. You don't want the wide receiver operating on a run-first team tethered to a second-year quarterback. That's just not a formula for a WR1 in fantasy. It's just not, especially if they sign either Jeremy Macklin or Eric Decker. That was my conspiracy theory two months ago. I said on these airwaves, the Jets would release Eric Decker and that his best case landing spot was the Dallas Cowboys. I said that months ago. Believe it or not, RC, I said it. Thank you. No, 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 no. Hold your applause, everyone. No, 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 no. Yes, that's fine. Go ahead and go ahead and clap. No, go ahead. No, go ahead. Keep clapping. Keep clapping. Yes. Yes. That's right. The prescient one, Matt Kelly, called the Eric Decker release. And I agree that it's a safe landing spot in Dallas. He doesn't necessarily nuke any breakout candidates, and he would be productive, either Jeremy Macklin or Eric Decker. The problem is the Dallas Cowboys love Terrence Williams. I don't know why. That is a problem. But they do. It's a fact. They're on record, front office, personnel, coaching staff, all on record, loving Terrence Williams. So that's not going to happen. Because Macklin and Decker are very similar players, they are elite NFL flankers and exceptional possession receivers, and they're both around age 30. So without distinguishing one from the other, What's another team that could use a Macklin slash Decker? Before I throw that team out, I was just thinking as you were talking, isn't it amazing? We spent six months gyrating around Corey Davis, Mike Williams, John Ross. Is this going to be the missing piece to their particular team's offenses? Yeah, and, and then here comes Macklin and Decker. Actual missing pieces. Proven performers that would actually be definitive yeah. pieces to fill a puzzle. You would want them over any rookie. Yes. For 2017. Of course. And and they're just sitting there somewhat for the taking on any of these Super Bowl contending teams. Generating a fraction of the media interest that the rookies do. Yeah. And the other team just to throw was and kind of thinking more of a fantasy slant um, would be the Indianapolis Colts. Uh, Macklin with Hilton Ooh. ends up giving them yes. two T.Y. Hilton mm. type receivers, but that could be interesting on turf. And then, you know, I, I just uh, I'm not a huge uh, Moncrief fan. If you want to move them to the number three in importance because they bring on Decker or Macklin, that's cool uh, and rotate him with um, Dorsett. But I, I, the, they could be quite interesting, either free up T.Y. Hilton a little bit more or just that passing game and the, the conditions, the turf, the dome, the whole bit. Could really. There's enough volume there that it actually makes Kamar Aiken interesting. Yeah, that's, I like Aiken as a uh, deep sleeper. So it bumps out Aiken from relevance altogether, but because there's so much volume, it allows Dante Moncrief to still have big games. T.Y. Hilton's role and volume likely wouldn't change, but it would be a boon for both Andrew Luck and whichever of the two receivers landed yeah. in Indianapolis. I love that call, RC. Let's think if Monk, if if Dante Moncrief can score the touchdown, the prolific touchdowns that he is 
on his, you know, and I just don't think, he, I think he's okay. Uh, but if he scores seven touchdowns in that offense, you know, Eric, healthy Eric Decker scoring 17 touchdowns, he's the Jordy Nelson of the Indianapolis Colts on that team uh, with the opportunity that's just sitting there for the taking. Eric Decker is a top five red zone option in the NFL. There are very few wide receivers that you would want to throw a pass to in the red zone over Eric Decker. Eric Decker is definitively better than Jeremy Macklin. If we had to compare them, and if you're an NFL team that needs a wide receiver, you should consider signing Eric Decker before Jeremy Macklin. I think the best case landing spots for both Macklin and Decker are Buffalo and Baltimore. Because Buffalo desperately needs a number two wide receiver. Zay Jones isn't it. Do you think Zay Jones is poised to be the number two wide receiver for the Buffalo Bills as a rookie? Do you think that's in Zay Jones' range of outcomes? A productive season as the number two option in Buffalo? Is that something Zay Jones is capable of, RC? I like Zay Jones, the talent, okay. But I wouldn't. I don't think I'd like any number two wide. I don't care almost what name you would put in there as the number two in Buffalo. Um it doesn't seem to between uh, Tyrod Taylor is a okay, solid enough NFL quarterback, but he's not dealing the volume of activity that I think could carry that second wide receiver to superstardom. He wouldn't. That's the thing is that it's not a great landing spot for Macklin or Decker, but it does ensure that no exciting breakout player is neutered in the process. Let me ask you this uh, question on Eric Decker, just rapid fire question. Eric Decker goes to the Buffalo Bills as currently constituted and Tyrod Taylor's the quarterback. How many touchdowns does Decker score this year? Just right off, the, what, what's your instant reaction? Eight. What about with Dallas? Decker to Dallas as currently constituted? Ten. How about with the Colts? Eleven. I don't know, man. I don't have these models in front of me. You're really killing me with these off-the-cuff calls. No one listened to what I just said. I was just guessing. I have no idea. I don't have the numbers in front of me. But those are pretty good guesses just because I'm very yeah, smart. I think, at, I think you uh, hit them all. They're, the Vegas odds just changed on their over-unders right on that answer. Yeah, right. The Raven. If if I asked the question about the Ravens as well, you probably would. We would both say Ravens and Bills. Yeah, six, seven, eight. Uh, Dallas and Indianapolis. We'd go. Oh, ten and more. So that's why. Why I. I think those are the better landing spots for them for fantasy. What's going to happen in reality is probably Baltimore and Buffalo. I think Baltimore and Buffalo are the safest because at least Decker and Macklin would be guaranteed starting roles and they wouldn't severely impact an exciting breakout player because I just don't consider Zay Jones an exciting breakout player. Zay Jones was a compiler at the college level, broke records at a small school, as part of an air raid offense in his senior year. I don't care how athletic you are. That's just not that exciting to me. I'd be happy to have Jeremy Macklin land in Buffalo. I think that would be a great asset for Tyrod Taylor. I think that would be a boon for Tyrod Taylor, for sure. And I don't think it would negatively impact Sammy Watkins. Same is true for Eric Decker landing in Baltimore. There's such a giant target void in Baltimore with Steve Smith retired and Dennis Pitta on the IR that... There's more targets in Baltimore than they have capable, efficient wide receivers to convert them. You know who's going to fill that in Baltimore. We want Rashad <laughs> Perriman to capture those targets. Absolutely. I want that very much. Further down on the depth chart. 
And I love Michael Campanaro. That little Campanaro. I love these players. But these players have no history of production at the NFL level. And Mike Wallace has only glimpses of NFL efficiency. So because of that, the target void is essentially insurmountable by the wide receivers that are currently in that wide receiver core. They're begging for Eric Decker to land in Baltimore and bring order to the force because he would command significant targets in a high-volume offense. The Ravens cannot run the ball, so they will be throwing it a lot again this year, over 600 pass attempts. Book it. Eric Decker would absorb a significant percentage of that. It would allow Mike Wallace to move to a field stretcher role where he belongs. It would allow Brashad Perriman's ramp up to be more gradual, as it should be. I'm very intrigued by the possibility of Eric Decker going to Baltimore. But what about Michael Campanaro? You like Michael Campanaro? I love him. You love him? I I love, uh, now, I love the player prospect. I'm not going to bet on him. I'm not placing him as a WR2 uh, out of the gate. um, Of course not. For fantasy. Um, But as far as the talent goes, I think he's more Julian Edelman, talent-wise, skill-wise, than what Cole Beasley, and I love Cole Beasley too in the uh, Dallas offense. I think Campanero is closer to Edelman for that offense. And with the opening, if they don't now, if Decker or Macklin wind up there, it puts a new wrinkle into it. But as the team, as it's currently constituted, with Wallace, the role that he's going to be in, Perriman can work all over the field and still has to prove that uh, he's stable and consistent. With Pitta gone and Steve Smith gone, and Flacco seeming to have a little bit more proclivity the last couple of years of just playing it safe, dump passes to Pitta, dump more timing routes to Steve Smith, not stretching the field. Somebody's got to be that dump option for Flacco. And if if they put Campanaro in that role as like Cole Beasley, what Cole Beasley does for Dallas, if they give Flacco that, and, and if he can stay healthy, obviously, that's his whole career has been with injury, um, that could get that could get interesting. His senior year at Wake Forest is one of the most amazing things I've seen from a smaller wide receiver. Um, He got hurt. He played seven games uh, and broke uh, his collarbone. So he couldn't finish out the senior year. But before he left, he was averaging over a hundred plus yards a game, eight catches a game, almost a touchdown a game in an offense that literally couldn't throw a forward pass. He was 50% of the offense in his first seven games. When he goes to the combine, he puts up numbers. They're elite, pretty much across the board. Um, if you if you didn't know his name and you just looked at his, you know, I'm sure your player profile and all. I mean, it's just wow. So he he's proven he can catch the ball under duress on a bad team in college. Uh, he he has all the metrics and the numbers. Um, when he got into the NFL, he started playing. You know, when he could stay healthy, they would get him into the game. Last year, they had to cut him before the season started because he was banged he doesn't have debilitating injuries it's just always a broken bone or a broken pinky he's out uh, uh he was hurt so he didn't make the roster they bumped him off the roster he was floating out there available they brought him back a couple weeks later put him on the practice squad this thing that strikes me strange and interesting about him is they brought him back last year and they threw him one target he played three games they threw him one target no catches so wow that's great but they oddly would give him a carry in each game and he averaged he he, the first time he got a carry got 39 yards the next time he got i think it was like 23 then the next time 10 he averaged 24 yards a carry i know he's not that guy he's not going to do that in perpetuity but 
I'm like, why is this guy coming off the practice squad? Why are you building running plays in for him? And he ran the ball some at Wake Forest. He's got that ability. He's a punt returner, kick returner. Get him the ball. 30 rushing attempts as a true freshman. This is what we talk about with the ideal slot receiver prototype. They often have special team success and rushing attempts on their resume. Talk about Tyler Boyd. He's another ideal slot receiver. Well, that's also Michael Campanaro. But what if Baltimore does not sign either Decker or Macklin? Someone has to absorb all of these vacated targets. If they don't sign Macklin or Decker, if Ben Watson is not 100% to start the season, who's left to catch all of those targets in and around the line of scrimmage? Well, they have a small running back who, like Michael Campanaro, is incredibly adept at taking short and intermediate passes and turning them upfield and maximizing each and every touch. His name is Danny Woodhead. If anyone besides Michael Campanaro benefits from the Dennis Pitta injury, it's Danny Woodhead, is it not? It is, and even further adding rocket fuel to that is if Kenneth Dixon were not going to be suspended for four games and give Woodhead that window to become relied upon, if Woodhead becomes that guy for Pitta, uh, I don't know how Dixon just walks in and just reassumes the role. I, I think if Woodhead gets established, I don't know that the Ravens would mess with that. It, it, everything to lose for Kenneth Dixon, everything to gain for Danny Woodhead um, – because of that, if those guys were fighting it out and had a full, you know, they were starting from week one, maybe they'd, they'd rotate and the Ravens are odd the way they use their talent. You think they signed Danny Woodhead to not play him? The, them signing Danny Woodhead is one of the most confusing. And I love Danny Woodhead. Uh, it's one of the most confusing. Why is it confusing? Um, it's never confusing when a team signs Danny Woodhead because like with Michael Campanaro, Danny Woodhead is good at football, but he's even better at football. Danny Woodhead's one of the best football players I've ever seen. So if a team decides to go sign one of the best football players I've ever seen, I don't care which of the 32 teams it is, it's a good decision. That's a good point. Uh, I like Kenneth Dixon to be in that role, play that same role. He's suspended. This is, I think, was he suspended before they signed him? Or did that news hit afterwards? I I can't. He's a second-year player who was a late fourth-round pick. We like Kenneth Dixon because we know how dominant he was at Louisiana Tech, 42.4% dominator rating, and he commanded a 10% college target share. He was the best receiving back to come out of college in 2016. That's a fact, but he's not Danny Woodhead because Danny Woodhead is one of the best receiving backs of all time. He's going to get that opportunity and because Danny Wood has is that good and reliable I don't think he'll give that role back up as long as he's healthy he's not giving that role back up as much as I like Kenneth Dixon he's not giving that role up because he's that good at what he does Danny Wood had commanded 107 targets in 2015 for a high volume offense well the Ravens are a high pass volume offense and Danny Woodhead is going to be in the game a lot for the first four games it's going to be Danny Woodhead and Terrence West The last thing you want is Terrence West in the game in high leverage situations. You don't want Terrence West to be in there in the hurry up package. You don't want Terrence West to be in there in passing situations. Hell, I don't even want Terrence West to be in the game in red zone situations. Because in that same year where Danny Woodhead commanded 107 targets out of the backfield, he also posted 20 red zone carries. 
that was top 30 among NFL running backs. A 195-pound running back commanded 20 red zone carries. That's who Danny Woodhead is. That's why he was an RB1 in fantasy in his two healthy seasons with San Diego. I don't see why he can't do something similar with the Ravens. It's there for the taking for him. It's there! Who else are they going to throw to? We've already established that Michael Campanaro has some sort of calcium deficiency. (laughs) He's breaking a bone every year he's playing football. Collarbone, toe, leg, arm. He's breaking some bone every year. He needs to take a calcium supplement. In 10 years, there will be a report that Michael Campanaro is the youngest man to ever be diagnosed with osteoporosis. (laughs) I don't understand it. Assuming Michael Campanaro breaks another bone in preseason, Think about how many targets Danny Woodhead is going to command in an offense that had over 700 pass attempts last year. My mind is spinning, RC. If Campanaro can keep his bones together and Woodhead keeps his ACL together, they've got options. They do. I'm sorry. I know everyone wants Brashad Perriman to command a 25% target share, but that's probably not going to happen. And it's probably not going to happen if you just look back at the history of the Ravens Tory Smith being somewhat similar in a in style and route and what they used him for, um, they never. Tory Smith was good, but there was a lot of misconnections. It was just a lot of Tory Smith going deep and Flacco just heaving one out there, and every once in a while they'd hook up. It wasn't. I never watched Flacco, Tory Smith, and went, "Wow, that's Montana to Rice. They are working it, man. They are back shoulder and they are all over the place." And, and I'm worried that Perriman's going. That's like he's so fast. They're just going to be, and you know, they're going to send him and Wallace deep and clear it out for Woodhead and and hopefully Campanaro. Brashad Perriman is quite similar to Tory Smith. Both their metrics and their film similar. And Bashad Perriman commanded a mere 10% target share last year. That was out of the top 100. So he couldn't crack the top 100 target share last year. You think he's going to suddenly jump to 20 from 10? That's very rare. It's highly improbable. So when you run the numbers on this offense, you come to the conclusion, the big winner, assuming they don't sign an Eric Decker, is Danny Woodhead. And potentially, 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 if he can fight off osteoporosis. Michael Campanaro. Now, making that assumption, assuming he's healthy, what's going to happen to the fantasy community when Michael Campanaro outscores Mike Williams in 2017? Because <laughs> that could happen. Well, that could I'm, happen. I can't wait for that to happen. If that happens. I'm going to retire from it and just bask in that glory of that. I, I'm laughing because... I think that's a real possibility. I will levitate up into the sky straight to heaven. And, and now you've got me, I'm laughing at a second thought. You got me thinking of Campanaro in that movie, was it Unbreakable with Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson, that Campanaro is the Samuel L. Jackson character that, oh, I don't know if you saw that movie where uh, Bruce Willis could not be, nothing could, he was impervious, but then there was his opposite on the planet. They were just part of the movie there was an opposite on the planet for everybody so there's one guy who couldn't be broken and then there was one guy that broke his bones basically every move every everything he did uh he broke his bones and he just kind of lived in a wheelchair i'm getting visions of michael campanaro in that uh yes. broken bone role but will he what will the fantasy community do um, i'm sure they will find a way to still love we should name the show michael campanaro wheelchair <laughs> That's my new fantasy name for my team. 
I'm sure they will find a way to excuse away whatever shortcomings of Mike Williams happened and re-love him again the following year and the following year. What are the Mike Williams shortcomings? I think he's more got a little too much Laquan Treadwell action uh, to really love him as a prospect. I, I, even just listening to analysts, I, I, I scouted them for myself and I thought the same thing. But I even hear analysts talk about with Mike Williams and, and Treadwell uh, some last year, but especially Mike Williams, they'll say, man, he, he's not open. He's not getting separation, but he can, you know, he'll make the catches. He's open when he's not open. And I always looked at all of the tape and of him not being open. And it, my big note was he's never open. He's not open. He's not getting separation away from receivers the way I would want to see a um, a high. If this guy's going to be a number one wide receiver, I want to see something. I want to see incredible leaping. I want to see incredible every speed. What when you look at the metrics of him, you know, his, his vertical is pretty flimsy. I mean, he's got the size, he's got some height to him, but the speed is not blazing. The agility's not blazing. There's nothing that I can go. That's an A ball player. He, I'm not saying he's terrible. I'm not saying he's he's Laquan Treadwell bad. I think there's problems with Treadwell. I think Laquan Treadwell will have a better season than Mike Williams this year. Uh, I think Laquan Treadwell is bordering on underrated, just as Mike Williams is maximum overrated. I think that could be an unbreakable situation, where for every overrated player, he has an underrated counterpart. <laughs> well, Mike Williams' underrated counterpart is now Laquan Treadwell. Well, let's think about this for a second. You want to be a good receiver in the NFL? You want to be a good receiver? You want to be Antonio Brown? You want to be Odell Beckham Jr.? What's their signature trait? The ability to gain separation on every play. That's the difference. You go put on the film of Antonio Brown or Odell Beckham. They're open every play. Every play, they're getting separation. And the exact opposite is true when you go back and look at the film of Mike Williams at Clemson. On every play, he's not open. He's converting some catches when he's not open. Congratulations. But that's something that may help you at the CFL level. But at the NFL level, good luck winning in that way consistently at the NFL level. Not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen, and I'm not paying a top five dynasty rookie draft pick <laughs> to even no. take a look. It's no. insane, his valuation based on his abilities. Now, speaking of things that aren't going to happen, what are the worst landing spots for Jeremy Macklin and Eric Decker? The landing spots that would just blow your mind, the ones that would never happen, the landing spots that would inflict maximum damage on both the player and the supporting cast they land on. I get, my mind's going to race to, I have to go through the catalog of either horrible quarterbacks and loaded wide receiver depth charts. One, the, the first one that popped to my mind was hit, uh, landing on the Philadelphia Eagles because I am not a Carson Wentz guy at all. Oh. And then they brought in, uh, you know, you got Matthews, Jeffrey, you got, pl you got plenty of like receivers, got height, good, you know, decent receivers. Um, but I, there's no room for, I, there, there was a Jeremy Macklin returning to Philadelphia just because of the ease of it. He used to play there, obviously. But, man, you want to talk about a horrible place for somebody, another wide receiver to land in that offense with all, that wide receiver depth chart. I'm, I'm afraid of all those wide receivers to a degree now for fantasy. You throw Macklin in on top of it, it's a disaster. If Macklin goes to Philadelphia, the Philadelphia Eagles become the bikini atoll of the NFL. It would just be a nuclear bomb crater in the NFL. We do not want that. I think it would be equally as damaging to the fantasy football community if 
Eric Decker went to Jacksonville, for example. That would just be a death blow. <laughs> I would hate that on so many levels. What do you think about Eric Decker going to Jacksonville? Well, since Blake Bortles is about the worst quarterback I've scouted and or watched in the NFL. Worse than Jared Goff? Uh, I'm going to pass on that one. Uh, I'm still I'm still clinging to uh, Goff. Those are the two worst, though, right? I'll throw Jameis Winston I had put as one of the worst quarterbacks I've seen. That's going in the outtakes. You can't say that. <laughs> I just wanted to, get, I wanted to throw a wrinkle in there. Jacksonville, too many plausible receivers there already, and Blake Bortles is the absolute worst. Yeah, we need volume-fueled Allen Robinson to make up for the inaccuracy of the targets. We can't have Eric Decker landing there. It helps no one. If you owned Eric Decker, that would be devastating. If you owned Allen Robinson, it would be devastating. If you owned Blake Bortles, it wouldn't matter because he's so bad anyway. It doesn't matter how good the weaponry is. Maybe one of them will go to the Chargers to replace Mike Williams since the Chargers want to keep overstacking their wide receiver depth chart. Awful. No, we need (laughs) Tyrell Williams to continue his ascendance. So we don't want to hear about... Who's that? Is, Is that a guy that plays for the Chargers? I never heard of him. Yes, yes. This guy, Tyrell Williams... No one wants to talk about him, but he's actually good. Now, when you look at the teams these receivers left, like Kansas City, the instant analysis is that Tyreek Hill is now the number one primary wide receiver for the Kansas City Chiefs, and he's in the conversation for top 20 wide receiver in fantasy. What the hell is going on, RC? I'm stunned. Well, Tyreek Hill, with Andy Reid coming out and saying that Hill is a number one wide receiver... I almost steered. Uh, I I could not believe what I was hearing. I like Tyreek Hill, and I'm going to defend that in a second. But you, him being used as a number one wide receiver, if they if they're purely going to try to jam him into the Macklin role and use him as a number one wide receiver, I'm taking my projections down. He is not a number. There's there's nothing about him nothing. that is a number one wide receiver. Nothing. Zero. And I love the guy. Nothing. I'm, I'm going to go on and be. He's a complimentary piece, an incredibly versatile gadget player whose upside is number two wide receiver for an NFL team. That's not awful. That's very good, very useful, absolutely a fantasy asset in the league. But number one option for a team, top 20 fantasy receiver, get the fuck out of here. All right, now you're going to kill me because I'm going to defend them as a top 20 wide receiver. What? One of the things I'm (laughs) – let me me toss this theory and then you can spike it. One of the paths I see to Hill becoming a top 20, even a top 10 uh, fantasy wide receiver – Top 10? Is the potential that there's about to become another shift – of the way players are used in the NFL. And and obviously we saw that, you know what I'm talking about with, you know, Hill getting carries, kind of having a dual role. But I think that shift is not only is, is starting to happen in the NFL, almost kind of like that defining moment of that that we talked about that didn't happen with the uh, fourth down with the Patriots. I think what Tyreek Hill did last year has put several NFL teams got their wheels spinning on them getting their version of Tyreek Hill. And for us uh, in analytics community, I missed uh, I didn't have good grades on Tyreek Hill coming out of college. I, I you probably you would have said the we might have said the same thing. Do you have amnesia, RC? Because we've seen this movie before. These same conversations were happening when Percy Harvin 
was excelling with the Minnesota Vikings. Then after that, Corderell Patterson. Then after that, Tavon Austin. Then after that, Corderell Patterson. And on and on and on. This is one of those perpetual conversations that happens literally every year. And the wide receiver that broke out the previous year in the gadget role, the all-purpose weapon in quotes, never lives up to expectations the following year. It's never happened. Percy Harvin never lived up to expectations the following year. Corderell Patterson never lived up to expectations the following year. Tavon Austin, on and on and on and on, back through time. The gadget player never lives up to expectations the following year because you project him to achieve a target share that he's incapable of capturing. It's the Peter principle in action on the football field. These players get promoted to their level of incompetence. Let me ask you this question. What's your take on Curtis Samuel? I think Tyreek Hill is his ceiling, and that's why we like Curtis Samuel in the early second round. Because that's all you're trying to get is Tyreek Hill in the second round. Why not? I think one of the interesting things with the, that's intrigued me about Curtis Samuel, and, and I say that from a standpoint of I'm still trying to get my arms around how to statistically identify how to uh, project them in the NFL. We're starting to get a little bit of a wave. The Percy Harvin, Tavon Austin, Patterson, the wide receiver – primary wide receiver being pulled back into a running back role uh, with Austin, some of the thinner guys, maybe not more gimmicky type of runners. There there might be getting ready to come a new wave of players that are running back mentality. It's almost like the opposite of David Johnson, a, a wide receiver skill set and then but he he's a running back, but he's he's has that wide receiver grounding. He he's got skills and experience as a wide receiver. What if there's some players kind of like Curtis Samuel, maybe Tyreek Hill, they have a running back's mentality and they're being moved out to wide receiver and NFL teams, which before would have ignored, they would have gone, hey, great, Patterson just, we just gave him the ball. He, he just ran for a 70-yard touchdown. They literally would not give him another carry the rest of the games. Like it, you, you don't want to take a second chance at this. What if the NFL is about to shift and actually embrace what a Tyreek Hill or Curtis Samuel can bring, not pigeonhole them and say, Tyreek Hill, you have to be a number one wide receiver. Samuel, you have to be in this certain role. I'd love to see evidence of this. When the evidence presents itself that this trend is happening and NFL teams are prepared to actually give the gimmick gadget player real volume that will allow them to be a WR2 in fantasy, I'm all in, RC. And the first guy that they should award this kind of volume to is actually Curtis Samuel. Curtis Samuel has a better prospect profile than Tyreek Hill. The reason why Curtis Samuel's ceiling is Tyreek Hill is because Tyreek Hill has now been bequeathed the number one wide receiver role. Curtis yeah. Samuel will not have that role in Carolina. So he can't be Tyreek Hill until he gets that role. If he somehow becomes the number one option in Carolina, then his ceiling is even higher than Tyreek Hill because he was a better prospect. He was a more efficient runner, and he was a more productive wide receiver at a major conference program, Ohio State, as opposed to being at West Alabama. Because when you compare Tyreek Hill's production at Oklahoma State to Curtis Samuel's production at Ohio State at similar ages to compare apples to apples, Curtis Samuel blows away Tyreek Hill. So if I were an NFL team, 
in real life, I would love to have Tyreek Hill or Curtis Samuel on my team. And if I had my choice, I would pick Curtis Samuel. But just because these players are tremendous real-life NFL weapons, they can swing the outcome of a game. They are valuable pieces for an offense. That doesn't mean that they should be drafted in the first 50 picks of a fantasy football draft. If you think, if I told you that Tyreek Hill was going to get three to five carries a game and catch five passes a game, do you think he would be a top 20 wide receiver? No. Like C.J. Proceis before him and Theo Riddick before him and Ty Montgomery before him, the best path to playing time for players that fit this profile is to convert full-time to running back. That's how you're going to get me all in on board with these players. But you stick them out at wide receiver, that I'm not that interested. That's my fear. My curiosity on Hill and Samuel and kind of looking over what the, I'm just I'm wondering if this is going to be the year, even if they try it and it fails, even if they try it and if it's half-assed and it doesn't go through. When I see the Bears reach up and take um, Tarek Cohen, why why are they taking him? And I watched the – I mean, Brandon Cooks is a little different level. He's a fantastic receiver, but Brandon Cooks can also carry the ball, and I'm not suggesting they're going to make him a running back for three to five carries. I, I see the Patriots making a move to a little smaller – 4-3 running, kind of stockier, not thin frame, not a J.J. Nelson type. These guys that have some running ability, some some thickness to their frame, they're 4-3 runners. They can run the ball just, you know, two, three times type weapon. It confuses the de- – it obviously confused the defenses last year because every time Hill got the ball, he's, you know, he just ran past everybody. So there's something – I think there's something trying to de- develop in this role that we wouldn't, you know – hit. We haven't seen this role. It's hard to judge them. It's hard to put them and kind of have a classification and say, oh, yes. I can judge them. It's actually very straightforward for me to judge them because they're nothing like Brandon Cooks. Brandon Cooks is what a top 20 fantasy wide receiver looks like. A guy that in the right role could be a top five fantasy wide receiver. Because at age 20, Brandon Cooks posted 128 receptions for 1,730 yards and 16 touchdowns. On top of 32 rush attempts for 217 rushing yards and two touchdowns. That's what an all-purpose, quote-unquote, offensive weapon looks like that deserves to be a full-time wide receiver who takes the occasional carry. Someone with Tyreek Hill's resume at the college level does not deserve a full-time role as a wide receiver. He deserves to be converted full-time to running back as the Chiefs did before with Dexter McCluster. What if they're going to make him a, don't you dare put those two names together, um, The what if the, um, now you're throwing me off my game. Um, it's game, it's set, it's match, Matt Kelly, boom, boom, boom. Once you start stuttering and stammering, I'm in trouble. Finish him. It is over. You are finished. I'm a grab for a branch. I'm holding your heart right now. It's beating. I can see it right now. I'm taking this pen out. Here's the pen, RC. The stuttering and stammering, trying to rationalize away all of Tyreek Hill's weaknesses. The heart is turning black. I'm so confident you're going to edit this part out. You have been defeated. I'm not even taking it seriously because I know you're editing that whole part out. You won't allow it to happen, including my stuttering. 
your stuttering is going in the main show and it's going in the outtakes. <laughs> Minimum, it's in the outtakes. And that's going to be an honor to be in the outtakes. When we talked about the risk-adverse nature of the NFL coaches, I think a guy like, whether it's Hill or Curtis Samuel, when you can turn that, you can call him a wide receiver, but they're really a running back out there as a wide receiver. You can make those short, simple passes. They love those short, simple, bubble screen type passes. They're safe. It, it, Blake Bortles can even complete them. If you can get Tyreek Hill the ball, and that's all I propose, and, and I think we'd all think this, and, and we'll all be complaining when it doesn't happen. You get him the ball safely, screen passes, bubble passes, four, five, six times a game, just like they did last year, just like they did for most of the second half of last year. And then you sprinkle in his carries. It makes him a a dangerous fantasy football option when he's getting his hands on the ball. I'm just arguing he will get it. You've just described a quality best ball receiver, assuming you can get him in the second half of the draft. You did not describe someone who's being drafted in the first five rounds of a draft who's being priced at his absolute maximum upside. (laughs) Now, what about Quincy Anunua? Because Quincy Anunua is the other wide receiver whose path has been cleared to becoming the primary option in the passing game for his team. But unlike Tyreek Hill, Quincy Anunua didn't have the wow factor plays in 2016. So I believe he's going to continue to be affordable. What is his fantasy football upside? One of the big takeaways for, for me last year um, watching Jets games live and Jets games back during the week to break them down is there were there were two wide there were two wide receivers that just I I'm watching them work in simplicity and going I this is incredible Tyreek Hill being one but Quincy Inunua being the other there were some amazing as you could just say he's amazing they would throw him the ball that where you don't want to throw Tyreek Hill the ball on an inside route or sitting you know squatting in a zone you know ten yards away they would do that with a Nunwa. He would get in between, he'd get, you know, in a pocket of a zone, catch a pass, spin so fast, so gracefully, turn it upfield before everyone else could catch up to him. And he would just outrun. I don't, I don't think people, you know, give respect how fast a Nunwa is because they think he kind of looks like a fullback. Are they using him as an H back, as a tight end? What do we love? We love size adjusted yeah. speed. Well, when you size adjust his speed, Quincy Anunua, 116.3, 96th percentile height adjusted speed score. You were seeing that in action. You can do everything with him. He he can work the middle almost like a quasi tight end. He can burn you deep. And if you play back off of him and you give him the bubble screen, which they didn't do that much of, but if you give him a bubble screen and let him on the loose with 4-4 four, four plus speed at his size, I, of all the guys in the last... Yeah, eight nine years that I've scouted wide receivers, he is the best blocker. I know that has nothing to do with fantasy. He is the best blocking wide receiver I have ever seen. But and then when you put that with a, you know, he's just physically tough with four four speed, and he can catch. I was a little worried uh, second year he seemed to be struggling catching the ball, but that wasn't an issue last year. I'm surprised they didn't turn it over. It looked like he was going to explode right out of the gates last year, and he did. And then they just kind of wandered away as soon as Fitzpatrick. You know, um, he's so tied into Marshall, it was it was ridiculous. He should have been tied into a noon one. A noon one could have been a star last year. So, I, considering the Jets are probably going to be down in a lot of games, he's going to see the most targets. He's by far the best receiver on that team. Uh, it could be going to be bananas. 
It's going to be bananas. It's the same argument for Pierre Garçon is the same argument you make with Quincy Inunua. Only Inunua might be more athletically gifted. When you talked about the Quincy Inunua route tree and all the places he succeeds on a football field, do you know what you were describing? The prototypical NFL X receiver. That's what you were describing. You were describing precisely what you want in an X receiver at the NFL level. And that's Quincy Inunua. And... There was a red flag in 2015. He posted a 47.8% catch rate with Ryan Fitzpatrick. I was concerned about that, but it was a small sample, only 46 targets. Then in 2016, catch rate goes up to 55%. He's never had a great catch rate, but what's interesting is you wonder, well, how much did the poor quarterback play affect him? Well, that's why we have target premium on playerprofiler.com. It looks at Quincy Anunua's per target efficiency compared to the other receivers in that passing game. And while his production premium and yards per target were outside the top 40, his target premium was 15.3%. That was top 12 in the NFL. So we like Quincy Anunua for all the same reasons we like Kenny Britt. Now you put him in that Jets offense, he has the attributes that we're looking for in an ascending wide receiver. A wide receiver who, if given the opportunity, can rise to the occasion. 6'2", 225, 41.7 dominator rating, 82nd percentile, upper percentile height-adjusted speed score, as we mentioned. So he checks all those boxes on the prospect profile, and now he's given opportunity. You could expect him to rise to the occasion. He's not going to be throttled by the Peter principle like Tyreek Hill will be. Tyreek Hill is being set up to fail in Kansas City, whereas Quincy Anunua is being set up for success. Makes sense. I was just thinking as you're talking about that, I'm sure when we check after the show, Jeremy Macklin will have signed with the Jets and break all of our hearts. (laughs) The Jets have figured out they need to tank. The influence of the Cleveland Browns is starting to permeate NFL front offices right in front of our eyes. Now, in many ways, the Chicago Bears are the anti-Cleveland Browns. You like Trubisky, though, right? Trubisky is just I, what I've done the most studying on in the last seven, eight years, what I think, what I have a, an affinity for and what I, I, I like to pride myself on is quarterbacks is one of the most difficult things. It's hard pairing through all the different passer metrics the strength of opponents, the surrounding circumstances, as you talked about with running backs, you know, there, there's a form of that to the to the quarterbacks as well. There's so many different components to scouting a quarterback. I was only going to mention as uh, in talk of sleeper quarterbacks or how Trubisky could have an effect on what's going on with the Bears. Just throwing in a, a of all the scouting that I have done past seven years of quarterbacks and watched a lot of tape got to compare a lot of them look at the numbers look at the the just the work on tape and try to pull out any clues take away any false things or outliers the two the two most natural quarterbacks i have ever witnessed is jimmy garoppolo and mitch trubisky mitchell before he was mitchell i loved i fell in love with him as mitch and i didn't expect to i i you see the name and it's just like this guy can't be any good with this name and as weird as that sounds i think there's some of that that happens in fantasy football that the name just doesn't doesn't do justice so i when i heard all the hype and i was just like oh boy i'm gonna i'm gonna tear this false idol down i i just uh adding on to the trubisky that Granted, it was only one year, and that can be a problem. But from what I saw in that one year, Woo! maybe the most natural 
quarterback I've scouted. And if you watch, I would just throw in there anybody who watches that last drive of his against Stanford in their bowl game was probably the most impressive quarterback tape I may have ever seen uh, from any quarterback. And it and it had incompletions in it, but the when you if you watch it, you'll know what I'm talking about. A college QBR and a college yards per attempt, both in the 90th percentile. Go ahead and go to playerprofiler.com forward slash player dash analysis. Pull all the quarterbacks with a college QBR above 89 and a college yards per attempt above 10. That's an impressive list. Mitchell Trubisky was the most impressive quarterback in college football last year, and he and Patrick Mahomes were the 1A and 1B quality quarterback prospects in this draft class head and shoulders above Deshaun Kaiser and Deshaun Watson the Deshauns agreed okay we agree too much I want to disagree with you on a player I want to find the player we disagree the most on and I think it's Melvin Gordon I think Melvin Gordon is a top five fantasy running back go to our dynasty rankings playerprofiler.com forward slash player dash rankings there you can see Melvin Gordon top five on our dynasty rankings because of course he is how can you not have Melvin Gordon at the peak of his powers as the primary bell cow back for the San Diego Chargers, not in your top five? Do you have Melvin Gordon in your top five dynasty running backs? No, I'm not sure if I have him in a top 10 or 15 either. What? Here's my case against Melvin Gordon. When you look just purely starting out with the analytics and the metrics, there's nothing that came to you exciting about what Gordon brought to the table. There was nothing off the charts. He wasn't bad. What? Are you kidding? Are you kidding? You're talking about workout metrics, right? This is one of my perpetual objections. The blanket use of the word metrics when describing simply workout metrics and testing metrics. Metrics are everything. They're dominator rating. They're yards per target. They're production premium and their height-adjusted speed score and catch radius. And when you look at Melvin Gordon, he has one of the most impressive college resumes of all time. 47.1% dominator rating. That was his percentage of the overall offense at Wisconsin. 95th percentile at a Power 5 conference school. That's almost unheard of. How did he do it? Incredible efficiency. 7.5 yards per carry. And he was also a pass catcher out of the backfield. 8.7% college target share. So he's one of the epic college runners of all time, evidenced by a 2,500-yard season. 2,500 yards and 22 total touchdowns in his final year at Wisconsin. That was sublime. And then what did he do? Oh, he went to the NFL scouting combine, and then boom, 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 boom. 68th percentile, 70th percentile, 76th percentile, in particular that agility score. 11-11 agility score at 6'1", 215, incredibly impressive. So he checks literally every box. How could you say he doesn't have great metrics? You just described Monty Ball, I believe, as well, and probably multiple Wisconsin running backs. Monte Ball? What are you talking about? Monte Ball was not nearly as dominant. He was a compiler evidenced by the yards per carry 5.1 as opposed to 7.5. And his workout metrics were in the 40th percentile or below across the board with the exception of average agility. Monte Ball was Vic Ballard behind the Wisconsin offensive line. 
We knew that Melvin Gordon was special when he went to the NFL scouting combine and he was well above average in every workout metric with the exception of bench press. And yes, Monte Ball had a productive season or two at Wisconsin, but he wasn't epic. He wasn't in the Barry Sanders echelon of college runners like Melvin Gordon. That's the difference. These guys are not even close to comparable. They are the same weight. That's about it. Monty Ball's numbers were epic, but and I understand uh, the yards per carry difference. Just patching my thought process together on Gordon, when I looked at him physically, and as you said... I think patching together is a great word for it because it's broken. It, with a poor burst, I didn't like the 10-yard time, 215 pounds, not, nothing jumped out and said... You were looking for reasons not to like him. It was classic confirmation bias because you knew in advance that the Wisconsin offensive line was a dominant unit. Sure. That's the narrative. And then you backed into your analysis from there. I talked to Matthew Friedman from Rotoviz and Fantasy Labs, and he said the same thing. These are some of the best, most highly respected fantasy football analysts in the industry. They were not high on Melvin Gordon. So it's not a big deal that you were this wrong, but you eventually have to concede that you were wrong and change your opinion. You have to course correct, RC. I'm giving you an opportunity to course correct. I'm throwing this life preserver with a rope off the back of the boat. Course correct. Course correct. There's an iceberg ahead. Course correct. Let me let me put my foot down harder on the accelerator. I'm firing flares in the air. <laughs> I'm trying to help you. So let's say I saw what I wanted to see with Gordon. And I didn't, I wasn't wowed. You just compared him to Monte Ball. That's all I needed to hear. And I put him in a Wisconsin bucket uh, unfairly. Let's say I did all of that. So I'm, I'm coming out and I'm going, okay. You better hope Melvin Gordon's mom does not <laughs> listen to this show. You comparing him to Monte Ball. If I walk into him with the NFL, into the NFL, thinking, I don't think he's that great. I don't think he's a top running back. Not a bust, but not a top running back. And then I watch him unfurl into the NFL. Obviously, his first season was a disaster. His yards per carry in that first season, 3.5, which is a mess. When you're getting all of the carries, that's that's it could be some offensive line. I'm not saying that you know it all goes on Gordon, but there was nothing about Terrible 2015. There was nothing nothing about 2015 that made you go, wow, Melvin Gordon's changing the game of football. Then you come into this past season. And everybody's like, ah, the, the Melvin Gordon renaissance. Look, he's got more yards. He's scoring all these touchdowns. I would just put, I would just put two things out there. Yards per carry last season had one big game against Tennessee. Pull that out conveniently for fuzzy math for a second. 3.6 yards per carry on everything else. You're not allowed to do that. You can't do the cheesy, we're not going to count his best game trick. I mean, that's amateur hour, RC. What are you doing? You take outliers out. We're not going to count his long runs. Is that next? Well, if he had any long runs, he scored 10 touchdowns last. What do you mean if he had any long runs? He had 15 runs of 15 yards or more. His breakaway run rate was 5.9. That was top 20 in the NFL, even when you account for all of his carries. 10 touchdowns, I think, last year running the ball, all of them from within six yards out, most of them from one to two yards out. I, I don't think he's a guy that is breaking apart. He's not breaking down defenses. He's not outrunning. I don't, when I watch him on tape, 
I think is just take the metrics aside, take whatever we think about what he's done in the NFL. When I just watch him, watch the optics of watching him run the ball, I think he's terrible. I think he hesitates in the backfield, unlike most running backs that I see that are in a starting role. There's a lot of behind the uh, line hesitations. You could say, well, that's a bad O-line. Yes. Yes, that's what it is. Hesitating and stopping first before it's the bad O-line. It is. The, the, he does not have great yards after contact numbers. He does not necessarily have great evaded tackle numbers either. So he's outside the top 30 in yards after contact per touch. He's outside the top 40 in evaded tackles per touch. So his elusiveness has not been great. No one said that he's this incredible elusive talent. He's not. But that doesn't mean he can't be a top five running back in the league. Because he has the resume going all the way back through time. He has this bad season as a rookie behind one of the worst run-blocking offensive lines. I think he's getting the most out of what the Chargers are giving him. Not a lot of running lanes. And when he does get running lanes, they're certainly not spacious. But what is he doing? He's catching passes. He's finding ways to contribute. 4.8 yards per touch. Top 40 in the NFL. So he's finding ways to contribute. He's finding ways to help fantasy teams with touchdowns and receptions. And as a first-round pick coming off a successful season, he's now afforded himself two more seasons as the primary back in L.A., and they've just released Danny Woodhead, showing even more confidence in Melvin Gordon's ability to catch passes out of the backfield and be a full-blown bell cow. Who would be surprised if... Melvin Gordon led all NFL running backs in opportunity share this year. Who would be surprised by that? The opportunity argument, completely valid. I could see him finishing top five, top ten, just because he's got the uh, unfettered workload. I think my take to anybody looking at drafting Melvin Gordon, where he's going to go, is if you're going to spend that kind of top five for a first round in a redraft type of capital – on Melvin Gordon. I don't think, I think there's signs statistically, I think there's some strands, some signs that there's a problem with Melvin, that he's not the elite running back. We kind of, be, uh, a great season, that great season at Wisconsin uh, that we debated earlier. And his draft status has, has given him a little bit of an aura, a mystique that I think there's some negatives kind of running through uh, his statistical DNA that makes me go, I don't know that I want to spend that kind of money on the talent that he had 215 pounds with the NFL starting to move more towards 225 pound guys or 200 pound guys that can run a four three. He Gordon just kind of falls in that middle ground of yes. He falls in that middle ground. Absolutely does. He falls in that middle ground exactly where Matt Forte has been successful for the last 10 years, because this exact conversation we're having was happening eight years ago about Matt Forte. Matt Forte is Melvin Gordon's best comparable player on playerprofiler.com, and they are strikingly similar. First year in the league, Matt Forte, 3.9 yards per carry. Second year in the league for Matt Forte, 3.6 yards per carry. And then in his third year in the league, 4.5 yards per carry for Matt Forte. If your cautionary tale is Matt Forte, then that's a tale I want to tell. I'm a... Melvin Gordon denier, so I would not pay the draft capital to get him, and I would not be... Do I have an alarm clock? We need an alarm clock. Ring the alarm clock. Wake up, RC! Wake up! It's time to wake up from this dream! Melvin Gordon 
is actually good. But there's plenty of running backs that do not have Melvin Gordon's pedigree, that do not have his prospect profile going back to his college days, and who absolutely could have benefited from significant randomness. Players that you should be issuing words of caution on before criticizing Melvin Gordon. I'm thinking of players like Jordan Howard. I have Jordan Howard ranked behind Melvin Gordon on the playerprofiler.com redraft and dynasty rankings. Check them out. Playerprofiler.com forward slash player dash rankings. I have Melvin Gordon ranked ahead of Jordan Howard because I think there's a real risk that Jordan Howard isn't the running back he's been sold to be by fantasy analysts. Do you agree with that at least? Partially. I like him better as a runner. If it was just down to running the ball, not uh, introducing pass catching into it, uh, I would take Howard over Gordon uh, as a runner. But when you introduce passing, I think that the potential downfall of Jordan Howard is they're going to have to introduce a third down type of back. They're going to have to get somebody that's a little bit better of a pass catcher. A little bit better? My 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 fear, yeah. Howard is a non-pass catcher. Yeah, my fear is that uh, at some point, he'll be in a split. So long-term, I might, you know, he might have uh, most of the uh, opportunity in 2017, but I think we're having this conversation in 2019, you know, he might be splitting with Jeremy McNichols in the backfield and all chaos is broken loose. Uh, and where Gordon won't, you're, you know, the, the Gordon bet is all chips in. He's either going to, he's either going to be that runner because he's a good receiver uh, or his running is going to be so bad that they're going to have to pull him from that. And he's going to get in a share where, you know, as I don't even want to say the silly names that could happen this year, but I, I can't imagine they're going to use Andre Williams as the short yardage guy and steal some of those. That's where Gordon got his numbers last year. No, no, let's, let's Melvin Gordon's going to be great. Jordan Howard, not so sure because Jordan Howard's red flags include a 4.2% college target share and average or below workout metrics across the board, including shockingly low upper body strength, only 16 reps of 225 at the NFL scouting combine. Look at his productivity last season. Number two in rushing yards, but outside the top 30 in receptions. That is damning. Whenever you see a running back compiling all of his production between the tackles, he's maxing out what he's capable of. That's a running back that is poised to disappoint the following season because when the run plays that are called do not play out perfectly as they did with many of his run plays last year because their line was one of the best run-blocking units in the league, you need to be able to catch passes out of the backfield to make up for the failed run plays. And the thing is, last year, it's not even like Jordan Howard had copious red zone carries. 31 red zone carries was outside the top 20. His red zone carries might be outside the top 30 this year with Mike Glennon under center. So if you don't have the red zone carries and you're not catching the passes, you're susceptible to anything going wrong between the tackles. That's why Jordan Howard is so fucking scary, RC. That same scariness, but with beyond the not including the receptions, I think could translate over to Gordon. Oh, for Christ's sake. I just gave you all the reasons why Gordon isn't as scary because he's in a better offensive system. He's going to be getting red zone carries and he's more active in the passing game. So regardless of how he any how either player performs between the tackles, and our opinion of them as runners, Melvin Gordon's floor is much higher. 
Think about what Jordan Howard would be if Jordan Howard were on the Rams. Who's better, Jordan Howard or Todd Gurley? Todd Gurley for me every time. Um, the only only David Johnson I think could top that argument where I'd pick somebody that wasn't Todd Gurley. Todd Gurley is one of the best, not only um, performers, but just scouting him on tape. Between him and David Johnson's the two best running backs I've ever seen at, at work, not only for their ability to run the ball, but especially, I mean, David Johnson's unbelievable catching the ball, but Todd Gurley is really an underrated receiver uh, and could be a massive weapon of mass destruction as a receiver, where Howard cannot be. But I would argue that if you only had their 2016 seasons to evaluate them mm-hmm. on, whether it's tape or metrics, you would choose Jordan Howard. Anyone would. Any human being, regardless of their football acumen, would choose Jordan Howard. Because running back talent is impossible to measure in a vacuum and fully understand and evaluate. The ambiguity of the running back position makes it impossible to evaluate with 100% certainty. And running backs are susceptible to significant single-season randomness in a way that other positions are not. Now, would you agree with this? That Jordan Howard has incredible footwork and is one of the most patient runners in the league? I would say footwork-wise, yes, one of the best at avoiding moving, going between the muddy mess, between traffic. Um, patient, in patience relative, patience hard to see with your eyes. And one, one person's patience is another person's Melvin Gordon hesitation. Um, so I don't, I don't know if patience is the right word, but it, maybe vision and footwork. But I guess you could probably put the hat of patience on top of it. Right. So vision and footwork. So across the board, the analysis I've read, Jordan Howard scores very highly in the vision and footwork categories. But I can guarantee you that Todd Gurley would not score highly in either the vision or footwork categories if only evaluated based on his 2016 season running behind a Rams offensive line that was an atrocity operating in a system that didn't allow him scoring opportunities. The running back position is very much codependent on the supporting cast in a way that other positions are not. They're operating in this symbiotic relationship with the offensive line and the quarterback, which makes evaluating running back performance damn near impossible with any kind of certainty because of the natural ambiguity of the position. Would you agree? Yeah, I, when I get confused with a cluster of running backs, because all these guys, you know, they're getting touches. Uh, you know, Melvin Gordon's going to be the starter. Um, he's going to get opportunity. Jordan Howard's going to be the starter. He's going to get opportunity. When when I'm looking at all of these guys, either there's for a particular NFL draft or looking ahead for fantasy football, if I get confused, if I start outweighing one person's Todd Gurley talent, but what a crappy season, what what's up with the Rams O-line versus, you know, Ezekiel Elliott has the benefit of a great line. How do I, how do I balance all of these different factors? I always at least try to pair it back to something simple as, is there something? Do you have a special factor about you that I can hang my hat on? Yes. And with 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 Jordan Howard, I, I do believe what he brings to the table uh, in his footwork and his vision is is definitely. I, I he's the opposite of him would be Christine Michael. Christine Michael has all the the uh, athleticism in the world, but you give him the ball and he runs as fast as he can at whatever hole he's supposed to go to. And if there's nobody in the way, he's going to run. 
but usually there's somebody in the way, and he just slips and falls like he land, you know, he stepped on a bar of soap in the shower. He's a terrible running back. We don't need to talk about Chris and Michael. Chris and Michael is over. Chris and Michael was never going to happen because he was demonstrating these traits at the college level, and they were unfixable at the yeah. professional level. So when I look for special, when I look for guys with a special feature, um, Gurley, the speed and burst, if he, you know, you have to give him some type of space to run. If you put him behind the Dallas Cowboys offensive line, right. you're talking NFL MVP potentially. Yeah, but he couldn't demonstrate the speed and burst right. in the context of the Rams offense last year. But Jordan Howard was afforded the opportunity to demonstrate great vision and footwork in the context of a Bears offense with a top five run blocking offensive line. If you put Jordan Howard on the Rams and there's backfield penetration and linebackers aren't respecting the passing game, we may never know that Jordan Howard has great footwork. We may never see Jordan Howard's vision because he's getting blindsided in the backfield by a defender and he's not afforded the opportunity to demonstrate his patience as a runner. That's why the running back position is uniquely challenging to evaluate. Running backs are impossible to fully understand because they are significantly susceptible to football relativity. Do you watch the movie Interstellar? Matthew McConaughey? Uh, caught pieces of it. Sorry. He's a farmer, but he's actually an astronaut. The one with Matt Damon where he's on, where he's the farmer? No, oh, that's a different one. That's Okay. That's the Martian. Yes, he's he's farming in outer space. The difference is Matt Damon was farming on Mars. Matthew McConaughey was farming on Earth, but because of an environmental catastrophe, even corn was not growing on planet Earth. It was a huge problem, but as the impossible white man, Matthew McConaughey was put in a spaceship and sent to another solar system with completely different gravity. And on a planet in that solar system, every minute of time was years of time on Earth because of relativity. Gravity skews our existence relative to others that are experiencing a different gravitational force. So one minute of time to Matthew McConaughey's body was years on Earth. That's what relativity is. So that's an extreme example of how reality can be skewed by outside forces. But let's put relativity behind us for a second, but let's stay with the physics metaphor. The focus on quantum mechanics, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. You cannot fully understand the nature of an electron because it's too fast, it's too small, and the simple act of observing it influences its behavior. So the moment you try to look at it, it starts changing and you're never able to perceive its true nature. That's the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. And running backs are like electron particles. We can never create a complete description of a running back in a vacuum because our models are always incomplete. We can never know the true nature of a running back. The true essence of a running back's quality can never be fully understood. So that's why I have to fall back more on things like near-term opportunity when evaluating a running back like Melvin Gordon. But additionally, I have to take these impressive single-season performances... I have to discount the impact of these impressive single-season performances because I'm never sure how much of it was the running back, how much of it was the running back's talent versus the running back's situation and supporting cast and circumstances influencing what I was watching. 
And I think if I understand you correctly in all that, you're saying that you're having a reaction to me that you now believe Melvin Gordon is not a top five running back. That's that's my takeaway. I want to fight you in the streets. <laughs> I'm kidding. You, what you said was spot on. It's the reason why Todd Gurley is better than Jordan Howard. That's what I was saying. That was a long way of saying, if you have Jordan Howard ranked ahead of Todd Gurley, you don't understand advanced physics. I agree. All right, I get you out of here on this. Give me one late round wide receiver (laughs) that we have to have in all fantasy formats. Could be a guy that you also qualify for truth or status on. Thinking of deep, deep, deep in the barrel. um, I've been following and keeping notes on, obviously nothing guaranteed, uh, Aldrick Robinson going to the 49ers. When I, I, I liked Robinson coming out of SMU several years ago, drafted by the Redskins. When he was drafted by the Redskins, he had both the Shanahan's there. So there, there's a connection to Kyle Shanahan, which is where he, he ended up following. Um, but when he hit Washington as a rookie, um, it, look at his the the physical measurables are fantastic. I think four four runner, um, he's a sub six seven three cone with with a vertical and with uh, some bench press strength. Just not a skinny receiver out of a high volume um, offense. Yeah, we talked about going to data analysis and pulling a list of quarterbacks. Go to playerprofiler.com forward slash data dash analysis and pull all wide receivers with a college dominator above 40 and a Spark X score above 120. That's also a very, very, very impressive list that Aldrick Robinson happens to be on. And, and his wild journey in the NFL. So he gets drafted by the Shanahan's. He starts game he didn't start but he played heavy in game one i think he had five catches and a touchdown like he played as he was a sixth or seventh round draft pick and he played right away as a rookie and people were excited um and then he just kind of disappeared i think he got banged up a little bit then he went into a doghouse and he kind of drifted for a couple years in washington he went in a doghouse he actually found a way to wedge himself inside a doghouse that sounds awful it's frightening that um he gets yanked out of the doghouse, signs with the Ravens, spends a lot of time on the practice squad, ends up with the Falcons last year, so he's reunited with Shanahan. And if you look at the end of last year, when Julio Jones was kind of banged up and they were walloping people and Jones didn't need to play as much, and Robinson was getting some pretty good snaps, had some, not only did he have some decent numbers, but four catches, 111 yards in week 15. And they were they were a couple spectacular catches, so yeah. he was he was starting to get attention uh, but obviously there's a lot of other uh, talent and he kind of was a running as like a number four wide receiver for the Falcons. Well, so he becomes available and then quietly he's lands over. He follows Shanahan or Shanahan, you know, wants him over in San Francisco. So I love Pierre Garçon, but somebody's going to have to be the number two, number three wide receiver there. And there's Robinson with all those physical measurables and, and the domination from college, you know, history with Shanahan, you know, who's he got to beat out in San Francisco. It's not like, you know, there's a long line of studs for the 49ers for him to beat out. So No, but it is a impressive wide receiver core simply looking at the talent configuration because you have – the target hog flanker, number one option in Pierre Garçon. Yep. You have the prototypical stretch X receiver on the outside, Aldrick Robinson. And you have the prototypical slot guy yep. in Jeremy Curley. So even though none of those three players are elite talents in the NFL, together as a unit, I think the sum of the total is greater than the sum of the parts. 
I think Garcon's got a higher ceiling that he's one of the better wide receivers in the NFL that is always between undervalued and underutilized. Uh, and then Robinson's just been, you know, drifting in outer space, but this may be his first shot to reclaim what he started out with in the NFL. I think in 2013 as a rookie, when he got out to a quick start and then just kind of fell off the map. So on his way home to planet earth, Matthew <laughs> McConaughey is going to pick up, Aldrick Robinson, as he floats in space, he's going to get the mechanical arm out from the shuttle bay, pick up Aldrick Robinson, pull him back into the cargo bay, shut the door, and Matthew McConaughey and Aldrick Robinson are going to take a rocket ship back to planet Earth. Matthew McConaughey and Aldrich Robinson are going to take a rocket ship back to planet Earth. Try to get Matthew McConaughey not to talk about Aldrich Robinson is what I say. Show's over. That was the show. Then he went into a doghouse and he kind of drifted for a couple years in Washington. He went in a doghouse? He actually found a way to wedge himself inside a doghouse? That sounds awful. I'm not sure if I have him in a top 10 or 15 either. What? You just described Monty Ball, I believe, as well. Monte Ball? What are you talking about? Course correct. Course correct. There's an iceberg ahead. Course correct. They are allowing snow angels. That was the big change. That was the big change. When I first started listening, I didn't. When the music outro went, I, I was like, oh, that's the end of the podcast. And it took a couple before I just didn't get to the phone or whatever to pause it. Then the talking started again. And then I'm like, oh, my favorite part of the show is the after show. People never talk about that. What's the worst place you could go? <laughs> go to Cleveland and blow up your Kenny Britt theory. Theory? It's not a theory. It's a Kenny Britt fact. I believe in Kenny Britt and Corey Coleman, but not when you put Cody Kessler into the soup. I think that's the bad ingredient. Corey Coleman's going to pull a hamstring. It's going to be the Kenny Britt show, and we're fine. You know how the sausage is made with these surprise breakout seasons and sleeper hits? A shoe has to drop along the way. And then when Ellington came back to the roster, if I remember correctly, Johnson's running third string. I'm sitting there thinking, how in the world could you possess that nuclear weapon? It's football. We know how it works. These are the risk-averse of the risk-averse actors in our society. These guys are more risk-averse than the keepers of the nuclear codes. These football coaches, they are wired in a way that sabotages their ability to win games the head coach in particular needs to be banned from calling plays they need to be out of that business he needs to be frozen out like he on his headset he can't get to that channel and the door to the booth upstairs needs to be locked and the head coach doesn't have the key there's too much going on no human being can process all that information why don't you just take a second chance at giving them another touch? And then after the game, they're going, 
Yeah, we need to get that guy more touches. <laughs> we got to figure this out. We need to sit down and have a Manhattan Project to figure out how to get a second carry to David Johnson. Honestly, I didn't want to say it on air like I was kissing your ass, but you are you really are fantastic at hosting a podcast and keeping it moving and keeping it interesting and being a personality. There's some people that are talking to me about doing podcasting. And I'm like, eh, I'm not sure. And then when I turn on and listen to you, I'm like, hell, I'm not going to be able to top this guy talking about fantasy football. So I, I just I really appreciate being on the show. And I think you're just terrific at what you do. And I think you're just terrific at what you do. And I think you're just terrific at what you do. You've made fantasy football podcast interesting where i was talking to some of my people uh and like well all fantasy podcasts suck so why are we even going there nobody cares about fantasy football podcasts but you are very good at what you do great show you are very good at what you do great show you are very good at what you do great show and we are setting a high bar. Hopefully we will discourage all the bad podcasters from putting out lame podcasts from now on. That's the goal. That's the secret agenda, right? <laughs> we won't be achieving our goal anytime soon. There are 22 subscribers. will have to find somewhere else to go. Oh! Don't you dare put those two names together. Um, the What if the... Um, now you're throwing me off my game. Um... It's game! It's set! It's match! Matt Kelly! Boom, boom, boom! But once you start stuttering and stammering... I'm in trouble. Finish him! It is over! You are finished! I'm gonna grab for a branch. I'm holding your heart right now. It's beating. I can see it right now. I'm taking this pen out. Here's the pen, RC. The stuttering and stammering, trying to rationalize away all of Tyreek Hill's weaknesses. <laughs> The heart is turning black. I'm so confident you're going to edit this part out. He hasn't been radically altered since his time at Nebraska. It's just taken this long for management to appreciate what they have in Quincy Anunua. If I were given a GM job in the NFL, I would immediately be a top 10 GM in the NFL, and you would as well. If a Tyrell Williams was cut after preseason... He would not make it to the practice squad. Do you want to know why? The Browns would sign him. And in a post-pedestal world, the Cleveland Browns aren't going to allow the Brock Osweiler contract to just sit around. They're going to trade for him. The Cleveland Browns are not going to let Tyrell Williams be cut and then parked on a practice squad. That's not going to happen with the Cleveland Browns lurking around. Um, the What if the... Um, before he was Mitchell, I loved, I fell in love with him as Mitch. And I love Michael Campanaro. That little Campanaro! Michael Campanaro has some sort of calcium deficiency. He's breaking a bone every year he's playing football. Collarbone, toe, leg, arm. He's breaking some bone every year. He needs to take a calcium supplement. In 10 years, there will be a report that... Michael Campanaro is the youngest man to ever be diagnosed with osteoporosis. <laughs> if Campanaro can keep his bones together and Woodhead keeps his ACL together, they've got options. Campanaro is the Samuel L. Jackson character. We should name the show Michael Campanaro Wheelchair. 
I think that could be an unbreakable situation where for every overrated player, he has an underrated counterpart. Well, Mike Williams' underrated counterpart is now Laquan Treadwell. The NFL Network is a Soviet broadcast company. Because Danny Woodhead is one of the best receiving backs of all time. Michael Campanaro. Worse than Jared Goff? Uh. Worse than Jared Goff? Uh. Worse than Jared Goff? Uh. I'll throw James Winston. I would put as one of the worst quarterbacks I've seen. That's going in the outtakes. You can't say that. Hill becoming a top 20, even a top 10 fantasy wide receiver. Top 10? Top 10. Top 10? Top 10. Top 10? Top 10. Do you have amnesia, RC? Because we've seen this movie before. If your cautionary tale is Matt Forte, then that's a tale I want to tell. You're saying that you're having a reaction to me that you now believe Melvin Gordon is not a top five running back. That's that's my takeaway. I want to fight you in the streets. If you have Jordan Howard ranked ahead of Todd Gurley, you don't understand advanced physics. I'm so confident you're going to edit this part out.